Welcome to Volume 8 of Divers Down. Chapter 10, Pau. Kip made a final inspection. The frame around the Ilakai was solid and the sand pulled away so the canoe was completely clear. Carol and Fran, squeezable plastic bottles ready, waited for word to begin injecting the liquid that would bubble and harden into a solid block of foam. The pipe frame was tied by rope yokes to anchors embedded deep in the sand. Hand winches were connected so that it could be eased to the surface. The aluminum sheets forming the cover were in place. Kip took a deep breath, blew his scuba con clear, and asked, Do we do it? Sato answered for all of them. Go for broke, Kip! Kip nodded. Carol and Fran injected catalyst and hardener into the first bottle of plastic, shook it to get a good mix, then uncapped the gallon bottle and squirted it upward into the Ilakai. They followed with more bottles while the others watched. Suddenly, Julie gripped Kip's arm and pointed. Bits of foam were squeezing out through the overlaps in the aluminum cover, sailing upward to the surface, and Kip saw little eddies where the foam was forcing the water out. The aluminum cover strained upward against the pipes across the canoe's top. Slowly, the Ilakai lifted, until the anchored yokes stopped it. Johnny and Pete shook hands with each other. Kip heard the muffled roar of a speeding boat and looked up in time to see a hull coast to a stop as the motor was cut. He wondered who it was. When he signaled as he would in a few moments, the entire mob would dive, the rest of the adults with them, for the last stages of raising the Ilakai. In a few moments, only the ship's crews and Jimmy would be left topside. Bob Richards broke the surface, driving down in a shower of bubbles. He gulped air and blew his scuba con clear. Kip, topside, quick! Kip used his own scuba con to call, hold everything. He went up through the water as fast as safety allowed. Julie and Pete close behind. The kahuna, Kioni Pohaku, was on the deck with Tap, Pryor, and Tony. Tap stepped forward as Kip, Julie, and Pete emerged. Kip, Dr. Pohaku came to warn us. Willis and his friends are on their way. Look for yourself. He handed Kip a pair of binoculars and pointed. Kip put the glasses to his eyes. A small fishing trawler was coming toward them from the direction of Kipahulu. Evidently, it had rounded the island from Lahaina. He could see three young men in the bow looking toward them, and as a slight adjustment of the glasses sharpened the focus, his lips tightened. McKay. The trawler had a boom and winch, with more than enough capacity to handle Kane. He handed the glasses back. Can we stop them? Tap Pryor shook his head. We have no right. We can't even stop them from picking up Kane, and they probably know it. Salvage rights hold true here, Kip. Whoever pulls Kane from the water first has first claim to him. But what can we do? Kip asked anxiously. Pete Jordan's answer was as usual. What do you think we should do, Kip? It had taken a while, but Kip was learning how Pete operated. Kip wanted him to solve his own problems. Okay, he didn't hesitate. He raised his voice. Jimmy, call the mob. In a few moments, the mob was assembled on the Holokai. Kip briefed them as he had Julie. He concluded with, There won't be any breaks to speak of in the ripple patterns in the sand near the canoe, but closer to the shore, they must have hauled the statue or pushed it, and the stand would be disturbed. 
I'm betting that they headed straight for that crescent of beach. Those with wrist compasses take a bearing. Get into gear quick. Meet at the Ilikai. When I give word, form a skirmish line. Hold hands for proper spacing and line up alphabetically left to right. Bring scuba comms. The moment you see anything unusual, yell. Hop to it, guys. We've got to find Kane before Willis gets to him. Tap Pryor's hand on Kip's shoulder stopped him as he started for the ship's side. Do you mind if we older divers come too, Kip? Kip gave him a quick grin. Glad to have you, sir. Let's go, Julie. They jumped in and finned to the bottom. Kip used his scuba comm to summon the bottom teams into the habitat, where he gave them the same briefing. By the time all were back in the water, young bodies were plummeting down from above, and within minutes the adults were there too. Kip grabbed a spare scuba bottle and stuck it in the sand beyond the Ilikai. With the scuba comm, he called, Form a line on that! After a few moments' confusion of flashing fins and adjustment of position, the 21 kids and four adults were in a skirmish line, spread out with hands just touching. Kip looked down the line and called, Let's go! The line moved across the sand. Kip watched anxiously. They were holding position very well, and as compass showed, they were moving in the right direction. A small barracuda came by, hovered curiously, then flashed away. Ahead, as far as Kip could see, the sand ripples stretched without interruption. He thought they must have gone nearly an eighth of a mile when Poncho, at the extreme left end, suddenly called, Truck! Kip broke out of line and finned over quickly. There was a poorly filled-in gouge to Poncho's left at the extreme limit of visibility. Kip knew his fastest, most agile divers. He grabbed his scuba comm and called, Umi, Poncho, go! Go! He fell in behind the flying fins, suddenly conscious of the heavy beat of a diesel engine above them. Willis. The mob strung out, the most powerful swimmers leaning close behind Pancho and Umi. Kip was suddenly conscious that Julie was at his side again, keeping up. He turned for a quick look and found Tap Pryor and Tony Angelo in his wake, with Pete and Johnny not far behind. Ahead, Pancho suddenly stopped fins vertical in the water as he probed head downward. As Kip reached him, a white hull drifted to a stop close overhead and a navy-type anchor plummeted down, narrowly missing Sato. Three bodies broke the surface, fins driving. Pancho was scooping sand away with his hands, Julie and Chuck helping. Kip stood upright, poised to spring as the three divers came down. Ski and Tom stood upright with him. Willis and company arrived as the mob gathered, and the three invaders reached the bottom to find themselves surrounded. Kip waited, watching Willis. Willis met Kip's eyes mask to mask and shook his head. Kip didn't know what Willis meant, but the other boy showed no signs of being aggressive. Kip held position with small movements of his hands, waiting. Suddenly, Willis looked tired, very tired. He turned away, swam slowly to his friends, and signaled them to go up. Kip saw Willis start to go up too, then suddenly stop, grabbing at one knee. His friends swam back to him. Kip realized what was happening. Willis had gotten the bends in his knees only a few days ago. There hadn't been time for him to recover fully, and the slight strain of the short dive had been enough to set his damaged knees off again. True to the name of the diver's ailment, he was bending over in agony. There was only one treatment, pressure, 
and the only chamber for miles was on the westward. Kep flashed upward through the water, reaching for his scuba comm. He faced Willis and saw, even through the mass, that the boy's face was contorted in pain. Chamber on ship, he said. Ease pain. We tow you over. Tony and Tap had arrived at Willis' side, too, and the others joined them. The four aquanauts could not rise into lower water pressure, but when the strange divers and Kip brought Willis to the bottom, they took turns helping to tow him. Tony Angelo raced ahead, and when the mob arrived with Willis, the personal transfer capsule was waiting. Kip helped Willis in and closed the hatch. Tony signaled the operator and the capsule went up. Willis would be transferred to the deck chamber and the pressure increased until the pain eased. Kip felt sorry for him, an emotion he had never expected to feel toward Willis, but he knew that McKay had lost far more than friendly competition. The adults went up to help take care of the injured boy, and Kip and the mob got back to work. Slowly, they eased the Ilikai to the surface. They swam it to where the slings were waiting, and Kip, personally, placed the slings so that the frame, not the canoe, would take the strain. At his signal, the crane operator took up the slack. The canoe, held in its frame of pipe and mesh, was resting its weight on the slings. The mob got out of the water, all except Kip. Now, this instant was success or failure. If the pipe frame was not rigid enough, the canoe would break. Kip adjusted the mask and mouthpiece and dove. He looked over the Ilikai with care. The slings were taut, the pipe frame was yielding very little, and the keel was straight. Kip surfaced and dropped his mouthpiece. His throat was so constricted he could hardly call out. Lift! The Ilikai lifted clear, water cascading over Kip. His anxious eyes saw the pipe frame yield a little, and his heart stopped when he waited for the sound of cracking wood. But it never came. The canoe lifted over the stern to the many hands that waited to steer it lovingly into the cradle they had built to receive it. Kip saw the cable go slack and heard the cheers of the Ilikai mob. Only then did he swim to the diver's platform. He hung from it, head on his arms, so weak with relief he couldn't move. A hand on his wet hair made him look up. Julie lifted his mask away, and her eyes were bright with unshed tears. You did it, she whispered. It's safe, Kip. You raised the Ilikai. For a moment longer, he hung there, grinning his relief and pleasure. Then he rolled out onto the platform. They weren't finished yet. Project Kahuna wouldn't be ended until Kane was safe aboard. He slipped off fins and tanks and carried them to the deck. Julie hurried with him to the wheelhouse. Jimmy, any divers with time nearly up? Ann, Bob, Carol, and Fran have 32 minutes left. You and Julie have 46. The rest have an hour and four minutes. Thanks, Jimmy. Announce those times on the bullhorn and tell the mob to stand by. Same for the kids below. They'll be waiting in the habitat. Kip was planning to recover Kane as soon as he checked on Willis. The adults were standing at the lock of the decompression chamber as he and Julie crossed to the westward. Willis's two friends were with them. One was saying, So we tried to talk him out of it. The doctor warned him to be very careful and not to use his legs much, or he might get into trouble again. And he wasn't supposed to die for at least a month, and then only if his knees were normal. But he said he was coming, if he had to do it alone, so we came with him. We flew to Kahului last night and hired the trawler, 
Planned to get here at dawn and grab Connie before you knew what was up. Only the old bucket was so slow it took about three hours longer than we planned. Pete shook his head. I'm really surprised. Willis is a bright kid, but he goofed this up unbelievably. How did he expect to get away with a stunt like this? Didn't he know he couldn't hope to sell the statue? Or was he planning to keep it? The other diver, a stocky boy with short-clipped hair, spoke up. I don't get you. Willis wouldn't sell or keep a rare statue like this one. Joe and I wouldn't have helped a thing like that. Willis said it was a gag. You were going to get the statue, then turn it over to the Bishop Museum for study before taking it to Makapuu. He thought it would be a real gas to grab it and deliver it to the museum before you. Now it all became clear to Kip. The McKay pride had been crushed. Willis was going to show them all, especially Julie Kip and the Makapuu adults who had turned down his plan. Kip was a proud boy too, and he could understand pride in somebody else. But Willis must have been too wrought up to think straight because he hadn't planned his piracy very well. He had just reacted, and with unfortunate results. Moving into the group, Kip asked, How's Willis? Getting along all right, Tap Pryor answered. We transferred him into the DDC and ran pressure up to three full atmospheres. The pain eased, so Tony is dropping him back to 45 feet equivalent. Dr. Bohaku is in there with him, giving him a sedative. Kip stared incredulous. The Kahuna is treating him? Tap smiled at his bewilderment. The Kahuna happens to be a physician. He took his medical degree at the University of California. Well, then he's not a real Kahuna, Kip said rather sadly. He certainly is, Johnny Keanu interrupted. Can you think of a better combination to treat Hawaiians than a modern doctor with real understanding of the beliefs and psychology of his patients? Kip couldn't. It makes sense, he agreed. Pete, we have to recover Kane. I'd like to use the small winch on the Holokai. It has enough cable to reach Kane, and we should be able to haul him over on an improvised sled. Go to it, Kip. Kimo will help with the winch and boom. Kip turned to Tony. We don't need the four aquanauts. We'll interfere with Willis if you bring them up now. We're going to keep Willis in the DDC and decompress him with the others. He'll be more comfortable and it may help his knee. Get the kids moving, Kip. Leave two men for Johnny and he'll bring the habitat up while you're getting Connie. A red light flashed on the DDC, Pete said. The doctor is moving into the outer chamber. We'll bring him out in a couple of minutes. Willis must be okay. Kip knew the chamber had an inner and outer section with a pressure lock between so people could go in and out. There was a similar smaller lock system projecting from the main chamber's side through which food could be passed without destroying the internal pressure. He would have liked to wait for the kahuna, but he had work to do. Back on the Holokai, he gathered the mob. We need to get the front aluminum sheet off the canoe. Bob, will you and Tom do that? Bend it up at the front peak where it was over the bow so we can use it as a sled to haul Kane back under the ship. Then, Umi and Bob, will you please help Johnny? The three of you will raise the habitat. Tony will send down the PTC to bring the guys up. The aluminum sheet made a fine sled. They lifted Kane from the sand where Willis had buried him, placed him on the sled, and guided him back while the cable was reeled in. Julie took over when they reached the ships. With Susan and Anne helping, she wrapped Kane in sheet plastic and secured him with rubber-covered chains. The crane lifted him aboard the ship amid cheers and applause from all. 
Dr. Pohaku, kahuna extraordinaire, was waiting. He raised his hands for silence and waited for it. Then he draped the statue with a cape of white tapa, the bark cloth of the ancient Hawaiians. While Umi waved a kahili like a torch made of brilliant feathers, the kahuna lit a candle made of kukui nuts that had been roasted, husked, and strung on a sliver of bamboo. A wreath of pungent smoke rose. Julie and Kip watched hand in hand, impressed by the simple solemnity of the ceremony. Kip knew the kukui nut candle contained no magic. It was simply a candle of old Hawaii, no more powerful or significant than candles in a church. The kahuna took the feathered kahili from Umi, intoned something in Hawaiian, lifted the tapa from Kane, intoned some more, picked up the kukui nut candle, and walked to the rail. He dropped them all into the sea. When they had sunk, he turned. That's all, he said to the watching mob. Thank you for joining us in this ancient ceremony. The kahuna turned to Julie. And to you, Miss Scott, congratulations. I think this Kane may be unique. At least I have never heard of another quite like him. You may be sure I will visit him at Makapu'u when you place him in his seat of honor. Julie's smile was luminous. Oh, thank you, Doctor. Thank you from all of us. Kane was indeed a find. He glowered from his temporary perch on the Holokai's workbench, his fearful scowl almost concealed by the magnificent helmet of finely carved black lava, a helmet like those of ancient Greece or Rome. Kip thought Kane was really sensational in his traditional ugliness, and Julie was ecstatic. As the kahuna dropped Willis's friends off at their hired trawler on his way back to Hana, Kip and Julie walked to the DDC and looked in through the port. Chuck, Ski, Sato, and Pancho were on their bunks, dressed in shorts and t-shirts. Willis was curled up on another bunk, his face to the wall. Kip called, Hey, Aquanauts! They heard him on the speaker inside, and as they answered, their voices emerged from a speaker near the port. All okay? Chuck asked. Kai couldn't be better. Kane is terrific, and the Ilikai is in fine shape. You four did a really great job. Anything we can do to make your stay in that bottle any happier? I have a complaint, Ski called. All they give us is lemonade and milk, no soda. Some silly thing about how it won't fizz while we're under pressure. And when the pressure decreases, it will fizz inside of us. Smuggle some in, keeper! Kip grinned. Can't. I refuse to be the one who caused Ski Palakowski to get the bends from drinking Coke. Sato chuckled and spoke in Umi-style pigeon. Who that nani wahini looking with you, Keep? I tell, she got one smile so big, she light up like Kalikimaka tree for you. And mela Kalikimaka to you too, Sato, Julie retorted. It's not too early for Merry Christmas the way we all feel. The New Year starts when we walk out of this tank, Pancho said. It was great all the way, Kip. He paused. Willis is asleep. The doctor gave him medicine, but he said to give you a message, like this. Thanks, Kip, but wait until next time. Kip grinned. I read him loud and clear. He and Julie walked to the bow. The mob was sprawled around the westward's deck, relaxing. They deserved a rest. 
They had done a great job, and they knew it, as one always knows when a well-done job is over. As historical exhibits, Kane and the Ilikai would belong to all who saw them, but in a far more personal and remembered way, Statue and Canoe would always belong to Julian Kipp and to the kids who had raised them from the sea bottom. Pete and Tap were just coming up the forward ladder as Kip and Julie passed. Kip, Pete said, stopping them. With you in charge of the mob, I could raise a battleship in a week. Very well done. Kip smiled his pleasure. That was an accolade coming from Pete Jordan. Tap added, Very well done to both of you. As I said once before, you're quite a team, Julie and Kip, and I want you both back next year. Will you come? Yes! Julie answered. Kip echoed her. It was what they had hoped. After the Ilikai was under its protective plastic dome, with sprays of glycol slowly replacing the seawater to preserve the canoe indefinitely, they would go back home to the mainland together. Norwalk and Port Jefferson were within easy driving distance from each other on good weekends. Kip had a car he had rebuilt, and they both had stamps and telephones. They would still be a team when next summer came and they returned to Makapu'u. The Holokai was just pulling away, the bubble machine in tow, en route to Lahaina. Very shortly, the westward would up anchor too. Kip looked out over the water beneath which the Ilikai had rested. He would work under the sea again, but never quite this way. Never with such a crew as the Ilikai mob. Umi was in the bow looking shoreward. He turned to them, smiling, and gestured toward the Holokai and its cargo. Pau, Umi said. Finished! Kip shook his head. He smiled at Julie. Not finished, Umi. Just beginning. My Kai! Umi smiled. It is good! The End Epilogue It's fun to speak Hawaiian. And really quite easy. Hawaiian words and names follow simple, regular rules. First, every vowel is pronounced. A, E, I, O, and U are pronounced A, E, E, O, and U. Sometimes it's natural to run two vowels together, like AI and AU. Vowels are pronounced but shortened, so AI becomes AI, said by a slow-speaking person with a drawl almost like I, and the pair AU is au, almost like ow. All words end in a vowel. When it's an e, the sound is shortened. Kane, man, is kane, but shortened almost to kani. Wahini, woman, is almost wahini. Accent is on the next to last syllable. The town of Waimanalo is Waimanalo. A parade of ghosts is oio, pronounced oio, oio. The only exception in the story is the volcano Hale Akala. The story takes place in Makapu'u, on the island of Oahu, and on the island of Maui, shortened from Maui. There aren't many Hawaiian words in the story, but try pronouncing them. It's no pilakia, pilikia, which means no trouble. About the author. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. I didn't know who Hal Gordon was until I did a serious bit of digging. Turns out that Hal Gordon is the pen name of Harold L. Goodwin, who was actually a very well-known writer of young adult fiction from 
the late 40s until the mid-70s, you may better know Goodwin under the pen names of John Blaine or Blake Savage. Goodwin was a government official and the author of 43 books, including the Rick Brandt Science Adventure series, upon which the TV show Johnny Quest was based. He also wrote the Rip Foster SF stories under the name of Blake Savage. His 25 Rick Brandt Science Adventure series books were published between 1947 and 1968. The series was known for familiarity with the places portrayed in the books. Goodwin's travels on behalf of the government took him to every continent, including Antarctica. The books were also known for their accurate portrayal of science and of scientific advances. The final book in the series, The Magic Talisman, was printed shortly after his death in 1990. Goodwin was also known for his books on space travel. Several were The Real Book About Stars, The Real Book About Space Travel, All About Rockets and Space Flight, and uh, Space, Frontier Unlimited. During the 1960s, Goodwin served as Special Assistant to the Administrator of NASA, where he handled public interpretation of the agency's missions and achievements during the original Mercury programs. He served as Special Presidential Envoy to Pope John XXIII, from whom he obtained Blessed St. Christopher medals for the original Mercury astronauts. And he didn't just write about scuba diving and growing fish in ponds, he knew his stuff firsthand. In 1969, Goodwin became Deputy Director of the National Sea Grant Program, from which he retired in 1973. Goodwin was a principal writer of the landmark report, Our Nation and the Sea. He also wrote Challenge of the Seven Seas with Senator Claiborne Pell, and he was author of Shrimp and Prawn Farming in the Western Hemisphere. We hope to present more of Goodwin's works in the future. We do hope, though, that you have enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of Divers Down. The performance copyright is 2009 by Uvula Audio, all rights reserved. The Hawaii Five-O theme was written by Morton Stevens, and that haunting, bubbly, underwater sea music that we used for the closing theme was composed by Colin Wilshire of 2B Media Services, and that can be found at SoundDogs.com. The music used for the luau scene was the traditional Hawaiian tune, Aloha Oe, which was provided by Blue Fused Music. In addition, our sound effects were primarily supplied by SoundDogs at SoundDogs.com. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at Uvula Audio at UvulaAudio.com and check out our MySpace website to contact fellow listeners at www.myspace.com slash uvulaaudio. We are listed on Podcast Alley, as many of you probably know. Please feel free to vote for the adult or kids bookcasts so that you can get more listeners. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts and other things. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the PayPal link. All money will go toward maintaining the podcast in the future. Our next podcast will be back on the adult podcast stream in several weeks. We will be presenting another in our long line of P.G. Wodehouse books. The book will be the sequel to Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit, which is How Right You Are, Jeeves. We've had you guys clamoring for more Wodehouse, and as usual, we think you will enjoy a return to the demented world of Bertie and Jeeves. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.